I have been really challenged just to think about when a speed bump comes up in my uh, quest for curiosity to be able to name it and be able to have that deep breath, that self-soothing, that ability to say, I want to clear this away so that I can really wonder about what's happening with other people. And so closing that distance can be hard, but man, there's just so much that you can learn from other people. And I, I love what's happening at Newman. It's a great model. Yeah, We've talked about that in the past with State, State of the Union. Like if you have uh, your students spend time at the retirement villages, there's, a, there's just a lot of richness of life and yeah. we need more of that. everybody to season four episode 13 of cap and gown thank you for joining us i'm rachel phillips buck vp for student success at ferris resources joined today by our president matt boisvert hey matt how's it going rachel good you're back on as my co-host instead of my guest so right. i'm not rolling take, out the, take the guest hat off yeah hey, that was fun oh yeah, you know great. super good conversation i really uh enjoyed our last episode Okay, I have a couple of housekeeping things to do. First of all, Matt, you know that the reason I live in Texas, and this is no exaggeration, the reason <clears throat> I live in Texas is because it is February and it is 82 degrees here today. And when I lived in Washington, D.C., and I came to look at the school, it was around this time of year, and I left a gigantic snowstorm where everything was canceled. Like we'd been out of school for days and I came to Texas and it was a day like today. And I was like, this is glorious. <laughs> I'm going to move here. Um, it is. This is the best time to be in Texas. For sure. It's in July. Not so great. Not so much. This is a great time. So this is the month. It is a spring like day outside. Also, um, we have a bunch of new listeners, and so I thought it would be really helpful just to give a breakdown of how we do our cap and gown shows. So we do a little bit of chit chat in the morning or in the in the beginning. How's it going? What's happening? Interesting things, um, and then we do about twenty minutes of State of the Union. That is where I spend all week looking at articles and news that's coming out around higher education. I read all of the things and then I pick a couple of, uh, of those for us to go over together so that you can be informed about the industry that you're working in. And then after about 20 minutes, we move on to our main content where we do interviews with people in the industry, where we talk about books, where we uncover like um, the kind of perspective of what's happening with students. And our goal is to, first of all, keep you really well informed, give you some things to think about, and always be promoting the work of student success. We are just always thinking about how do we become really good at um, helping students to go through not just their first year, but all the way on to graduation. So that is my short spiel about what cap and gown is. Um, also remember, if you are on watching us on LinkedIn, please follow us. If you are watching us on YouTube, please subscribe. And if you are listening to us where you listen to your podcast, hi, thanks for spending time with us. Um, we'd love for you to give us a rating and a comment so that we can continue to spread the work we're doing all over. How was that for a short cap and gown commercial? Yeah, I think that was great. The only thing that that's missing is a little, hey, I'm Rachel Phillips Buck, and this is why I'm uh, hosting cap and gown or, you know, just, just thinking about just, a who I am. Yeah. I'm, I said, I'm the VP for student success at Ferris resources, just always pressing forward student success. So my background is as a licensed professional counselor and I work with schools all over the United States and Canada to think about how we can best support our students. So there's my, um, but you know, Matt, I think you're going to interview me in a couple of weeks. So if you yeah. want the whole big story, you guys will have to tune and, in. And, you know, I've been, we've worked together for a long time, but there are certain things that come up during a week. So I'm just, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm like making a little list oh, of. No. All right. Yeah. Make me very nervous. Okay. Our theme for the year is curiosity. We just unveiled this in January. 
We are going to talk about our curiosity book today. It's called Seek How Curiosity Can Transform Your Life and Change the World. But one of the things that we're distinguishing between is our shallow curiosity and our deep curiosity. And there's no better expression of shallow curiosity than what your Google searches uh, say about you. So in the vein of our new um, theme, here are my top five Google or most recent uh, Google searches. Five? Yeah. Number one, where does paprika come from? Not Spain, Central America. Yeah. Number two, what is the NAP ministry? Because I read about it in this book and I was like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) The NAP ministry, look it up. I'm on board. Yeah. How did I not start the NAP ministry? Um, Number three, how far is the University of Mount St. Vincent from 27th Street? I talked to that university yesterday. They're in Bronx, uh, the Bronx, and they are 15 miles from where I grew up in New York City, which that's super fun. Um, And then, oh, no, I said five, but I only have four. And then the last one is, which I did not get a good answer for this. So if anyone has an answer, please, please tell, like, find a way to contact me, Okay how to show pages in my Kindle on the iPad instead of location. Oh, I gotcha. No, I think you think that's easy. It is not. <laughs> I don't know what location means. Actually, I do because I did a lot of research about this, but it's very complicated on the iPad to make it shift to pages. I followed all these tutorials and it would be like step up to five. And then the last step, I wouldn't have what they were showing. So anyway. Oh, those are my top four Google searches. Do you have yours? I do. Oh, I understand the problem here because it's not on a Kindle. It's on the iPad. Right. It's the Kindle app on the iPad and right. it gets confused. Right. Okay. So uh, let's see. I'm, uh, one of my Google searches was types of stars. Okay. So that's interesting. There's seven. Oh. This comes out of a book that I'm reading. Another was Lion Mane. Oh, Yeah. The mushroom, lion, lion's mane. The fungus, yeah. The yeah. lion's mane, yeah. Uh, this one's funny. It's called Pocket GM, so it's draft guide. Okay. So it's good. I feel, like I, I feel like I should probably explain that, but. No, you just keep going. Okay. And then number four, this is interesting. QR code FBI warning. So this came up this morning. Welcome to a look into our shallow curiosities. Aren't you curious about any of those? Of I mean, course. Curious about yeah, all of them. We don't have time to unpack all of the things right. that we think about in a day. So there you that go. Is, that would be a new segment for Cap and Gown. We don't yeah, have time that's for a, that. That's a different podcast. That's a yeah. curiosity podcast. All right. That means it is time for our next segment, which is called State of the Union. <laughs> Okay, you guys, FAFSA. I'm not going to spend much time on this. You know what's going on. The new things that have developed are um, they're talking about the details of the $500 million of the FAFSA support fund. No, it's not. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're right. Because that would actually be helpful. Makes sense. $50 million for the FAFSA support fund. Um, I did the math. It's like $12,500 per, you know, whatever. It's. but not a lot of money for school. So that's not the right math. It's like I a know. very small amount of schools, number of schools are getting it. So obviously all historic black colleges and universities, as well as tribal colleges and universities are going to get some of the support. The article is all about how it's going to these people who are then going to give it to these people who are going to give it to these people who then are going to actually give you the support. So I don't have a lot of confidence in that. Um And, you know, Matt, this started off as a like, it's crazy what's happening with FAFSA. And it's quickly turning into a, it's not really funny. It's kind of a complete disaster. So the other thing that's happening is a lot of schools actually, because they're anxious about what's going on, they're creating their own ballpark estimate application. So Southwestern University in Texas was one of the first they were just like, hey, this is not going to work. They have a formula that mimics the new student aid index calculations. 
they're doing guarantees on that, that if they tell you this is how much aid you will get and you actually end up getting less, they will cover the difference. And if you get more when the actual application comes in, they will apply that to your bill. So there are just schools all over who are like, hey, we want to make sure that we can at least give you some assurances of given the um, equation that we know about, this is about what you would get. So I really, really appreciate that. And our friends at Credo actually just put out a FAFSA strategy guide to support student success. So here is the link for that, but you can just search for that title and Credo, and it just goes through, hey, here's what's happening, here's what you need to do specifically around student success. So at this point, I think everybody is just looking for resources and really trying to scramble to figure out what we're going to do about FAFSA. So there's that. Um, okay, Cornell and Penn, University of Pennsylvania, stopped releasing the dean's lists a couple of years ago in order, not a couple of semesters ago to reduce students' academic stress. They were like, this is really stressful. Everybody is a perfectionist on our campus. They feel pressured to earn the highest grades. It's um, not good for their mental health. Some people are pushing back and saying like, hey, we appreciate a culture of individual achievement. We like the Dean's List. It's something that we're striving for. So of course you have two camps. What I think is funny about this article is that the vice president for external affairs for Cornell's student government organization said the change has gone virtually unnoticed by most students since it went into effect last semester, which kind of makes me think there's two kinds of students, students who care about it and students who don't. And for the students who don't care about it, it not existing anymore, like they don't, they haven't noticed. And then for those who are like, I really want to get on the Dean's list, they're very unhappy that it's gone. So I think this is interesting, Rachel, with if you think about so your experience in college, did you know there was a dean's list? No. Did you want to be on the dean's list? No. And if my daughter was in college, she would have researched the dean's list before she ever set foot on campus. And she would be like, what do I have to do to be on that? Right. So it's just just different strokes for different. Well, people is all I'm somewhere between the two of you because. I didn't know there was a dean's list until I got a letter that I was on it. Oh. And then I was like, oh, that's a thing that I need to do. So then it was game on. Yeah. It, yeah. Good. But I always, I always, I never made decisions because of the dean's list. It was nice to earn it. That's probably a good continuum. I think we probably represent the three. Yeah. There. All right. Okay, um, we have a great article about research highlighting common barriers, barriers to re-enrolling in college. This comes out of a study from California that the National Student Clearinghouse did, where they are looking at um, 6 million Californians aged 25 to 64 who've completed some college but have not yet earned a credential. So they're trying to figure out, like, how do we get these students to be able to come back and be successful? And they really are detailed about you need to do strategic outreach. A lot of these students have said they never heard actually from their schools after they dropped out. And yeah. so being able to say like, hey, you can come back. You actually are eligible to be able to come back and finish. And here's the timeline um, is one of the things that they suggest. Really understanding what the barriers are to enrollment. So things like registration, being confused about that. Um, and then also, just being able to have like things like, I love this language. This comes out of the University of Miami's, uh, University of Miami, where they have a comebacker orientation, which is like very specialized for this group of students, um, adult focused advising, a lot of online resources and really good academic and planning, planning and progress for those students who are like, you know, I just have two semesters. Can I fit it into my busy life? So it's a great article that just is very detailed about how you can do that well. Well, you know, I'm passionate about service design and and this is perfect for service blueprinting to oh, so yeah. again, through, through the eyes of these comebackers or those who have not yet made that decision to just unpack, like, what were the barriers? What were the barriers to, to re-enrolling? What can we do? Yeah. And I wonder about the um, it's it's like you just need an on ramp, right? That's what we're trying to identify. What is the on ramp? on ramp for that group to be able to then just come back and be like, yes, I'm going to get on and get back on the highway. So I love that. 
Um, also, a really great article about how colleges need an online strategy to better serve first-generation students. Um, this is really interesting to me. A majority of college students, around 70%, are now enrolled in at least one online course. So this has become like just the way that it goes. Even if you're not just on online classes, you can be in them like you're taking one or two or a short course or something like that. But they really talk about for first generation students who are very positive about the shift online, um, how we design courses to support that population. So things like intentional design, excellent teachers. One of the things they say is the benefit of going online is that you can source the best teachers in the world, right? It's not just the faculty member that lives in the town that you're in, but you can actually find exceptional talent um, in terms of faculty, personalized learning. And then also, I really love this. They talk about a valuable credentialing for that group of students. And you remember, Matt, last week we talked about the accreditation group that was saying, how do you increase the upward financial mobility of students who graduate and students who don't graduate? So saying, even if you just took some classes from us, how do we then show you the value of those classes? This micro uh, credentialing, I think, is a really powerful piece of that. You've taken this class, you get a certificate in this thing. All right. So I love that. Good. A couple more for you. This article about how HBCUs are building a stronger Black teacher pipeline, I think, is fascinating. I would like for us to do some more research on this and talk a little bit about it. Uh, a little bit more about it, but it says that um, HBCUs produce 50% of all Black educators nationwide. It's amazing. Yeah. It's so, amazing. What does it say? It's 3% of, of... So HBCUs make up only 3% of colleges and universities, but 50% of Black educators come from those institutions. Wow. So they're like, they're, they're tapping into a teacher pipeline by looking at faculty networks, establish, establishing great relationships with school districts. Um, a really big piece for um, our, our teacher, Black teachers is uh, low salaries. So 30, let's see. 20, no, 34% said of, of black teachers said low salaries is a top factor in their job stress. So HBCUs are trying to figure out how to address that issue. Um, it just makes it not as attractive for our black teachers to go into school. So I think that's remarkable. I think there are so many people who would invest in that. Like, let me give money to that. That's amazing. So awesome. Very cool. Okay. Um, just a few more for you. So this one I think is, you know, okay, let me just take a little side note here. This article is called Study Evaluates Four Factors of College Student Belonging. One of my pet peeves is that everybody knows student belonging is a important factor in retention and graduation, but I feel like people talk about it a lot of terms with a little a lot of times with a little like finger wiggling about it, like you just have to give them a sense of belonging. And we don't drill down into what that means. We're gonna talk actually a little bit about that with the culture code today, talking about how we send those belonging cues, which I think is, I told you, it's like the most practical guide I've ever seen on belonging cues. But this article talks about the sense of social fit scale, which is a relatively new scale. They're still kind of doing some testing around it. But they are measuring students' feelings of belonging based on identification with the university, social match, social acceptance, and cultural capital in higher education. So I want to learn a lot more about this because I like those four dimensions. I'd like to understand a little bit better what they are. This article talks specifically around cultural capital and gives examples of questions that measure that. Measure that. So other people understand more than I do about what's going on at school. It's a mystery to me how my school works. I know how to do well at school. I do not know what I would need to do to make my school professor like me. And if I wanted to, I could potentially do very well at school. So those are cultural capital questions. So really interested in this uh, survey. Scale, yeah. All right, and then I have one more for you. 
this one just makes me feel happy. Also, it's it's instructive. So there is a school in Massachusetts that has a canine community dog. Its name is Siggy. Okay. Um, the community resource officers provide education to the community, including safety and crime prevention. So they go to like incident calls and engage the campus community. They have this new English golden cream, sorry, cream golden retriever that just goes along with them on all of their calls and settles everybody down. Like you, you can do office hours with this golden retriever if you need a little love, but then this puppy kind of shows up at like critical incidents and everyone just kind of settles down, which I think is really remarkable. I love it. I love it too. I, so just thinking about this, I, I just was, was wondering about what are some other, we all, you know, know how dogs are supportive and um and really reduce stress having so like some schools have had uh puppy petting during mm -hmm. finals week just a puppy pin you know come and, and de-stress but i was thinking like what about like a koala bear like would that be fun Whereas, they're cute but i some of those cute animals are very crabby you know what <laughs> well, i mean yeah. that's what have to be careful about i know i know so, but I, my favorite my favorite idea, so I was just brainstorming on this because, you know, like some people love cats and and could we have like cats? I don't know. They, they make you feel kind of not important sometimes. Well, they're just not going to do what you've asked. Yeah. Is all. But my favorite is when went to the zoo, took the kids to the zoo and there was a sloth. Oh, yeah. And that just helps you slow down a little bit, you know? Yes. I don't, that would make me crazy. Um, oh, that's Z's favorite. Z's favorite is a sloth, so good work. Yeah. Okay, one more thing that I wanna say before we close State of the Union, and that is this article actually was really helpful because it talks about the different kinds of service dogs. So it talks about therapy dogs, which are trained to provide comfort and care to a person in a clinical setting. I have a friend who has her dog trained as a, she's a, she's a counselor. And her dog is trained as a therapy dog. So when she does counseling, her dog comes with her to work and sits in the lap of the person and they just like pet it and talk about stuff. Nice. Right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, then we have emotional support dogs for mental health re reasons, which is based on not on the dog's ability, but on the student's need. So it's not that they're specially trained in some way. It's just that a student is saying, I need this as an emotional support animal. Then a service dog, which is a dog that has specialized training to assist a person with a disability in daily living. And then we have a facility dog, which I've never heard of this before. They get similar training to a service dog, but they work with one staff member in a larger setting, like a courthouse or school or counseling center or hospital. So they like belong to the hospital and then help different constituents based on what they need. Isn't that fascinating? It is fascinating. I mean, yeah. they're amazing. <clears throat> I love dogs. I just, I just thought it would be fun to brainstorm what other animals. Yeah, there you go. All right. That is the state of the union. We end with puppies. You know, man, I did a presentation the other day that was kind of rough and I just put puppy pictures in between all of the <laughs> stuff. Like, let's just take a breath and look at this puppy. So it's a good stress reliever. Good. All right. We are going to talk today, like I said, about this book that we're covering for this semester. We have a couple that we're going to cover over the year, but right now we're talking about SEEK. Um, and our topic today is really around speed bumps to curiosity. Before we dive into those speed bumps, I want to talk just a little bit about deep curiosity, which, you know, last time we did this book, uh, the chapter in this book, we talked about shallow curiosity and deep curiosity. But I want to reorient us in deep curiosity for this idea of wondering, of showing up with um, questions to try to understand deeply another person's perspective or another person's experience. It is not so much like a, where did paprika come from, but a, I, I, I don't know, you know, my training's in counseling, so it's hard for me to see this any other way, but it is this hat of like, we show up in a room together and I'm trying to understand you. And so I'm not saying like, hey, what is your name? I'm saying, tell me where your name comes from. How did you get that name? Right. Or where are you from? 
No, this is like, so tell me about your experiences. You grew up in Seattle. Help me understand what that was like for you. It's just a lot of help me understand how did that impact you? How would I see that in your life today? Those kinds of invitations into another person's experience, I think is so helpful. And the only other, well, not the only other, but another great example of that, when I was thinking about how to describe this idea of deep curiosity, I spent a summer in Croatia teaching English and I was there to teach English. And so I had a bunch of students and we would be one-on-one, but we were learning English in the context of their culture. So I didn't know anything about it. So I was like, teach me where the bakery is and teach me what you guys do for fun and show me how to order this. And right, like, like just a sense of deep curiosity about what it's like to be in this experience that I have no context for and I maybe don't understand. Yeah. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about that deep curiosity piece. So I went on a, I went on vacation, uh, couple of weeks ago, and I was able to spend time with a retired postmaster. Mm. And and we had just talked about curiosity and, and deep curiosity. And it's like, okay, well, here's here's an experience I couldn't even imagine, really. But what, it was just so fascinating to hear about his father was a, a, a mailman. And, he, and so it was like a family. And I think, I think his grandfather was, like, it was a family thing. So just to be in this place where it's, I'm just learning, I'm just listening and I'm asking more, wanting to hear more questions. How did, how did, how did he get into this career? And then to unpack that, um, it's pretty, pretty fascinating just to be able to step back. So it was nice that I was on vacation, Yeah. but just to be able to step back and, and hear about someone else's totally different life and career and, uh, trying to to imagine what that would be like, you know, yeah. all of all of the things that he experienced. It's such a great example because when we talk about things that are speed bumps to curiosity, mm-hmm. um, these these are things that get in the way of our brain wondering, and they're very real things, and they're things that we have to to think about. And I think about them in terms of our students, especially, but but I think to to internalize those as professionals and to say, what are the things that happen where we move from curiosity and eagerness and openness and time and just that wondering piece to closed off and like, I'm not doing it, right? Yeah. And we're gonna talk about the speed bumps of we have fear, we have trauma, we have time and we have distance. But I want to just remind us that curiosity is the same as connection brain and fear is the same as danger brain. So when we talk about our students showing up to campus as freshmen in a danger brain, they're in a fear brain. They, they, they are having a hard time being curious because they're worried about all the things we're about to talk about. It's the same, it's fear, right? Danger brain. What's, what are the threats here? What do I need to be careful about? Do I really belong here? What's going to happen to me? And our goal is to move them to connection brain. These are people that I'm going to live with for the next four years that I can understand better. And I would argue that that connection brain is very closely tied to curiosity. It is showing up in a place like Croatia and being like, I have no idea. I wonder when you eat dinner and I wonder where you go and I wonder where you wake up, right? That sort of curiosity is what we're talking about, moving our students into a sense of belonging and wonderment about this new place instead of danger and fear. Yeah. And so I think there's there's that piece, which there's, there's a whole lot to unpack when we're thinking about our students. And then there's this other other piece when I think about curiosity and it's where you and I are, it's it's our it's our friends at universities as professionals and like, you know, also so not just for students, but as we talk through this, how does this apply to you and where do you find yourself? Are you still in this kind of closed off danger brain? And, and as we go through it, I think it's fair to say there's a lot that's still happening that keeps us from being curious. Yeah. So being mindful of we're it's 
impossible. I mean, you could talk about it, but really to, to model curiosity if you're stuck in this kind of closed off brain. Yeah, for sure. Break. Okay, so the first thing is fear. That's a speed bump to curiosity. There are lots of different things that you can be afraid of. You can be afraid of rejection. You can be afraid that you're going to be turned turned down in this bid for connection. I'm afraid that I'm afraid that if I ask you about it, you're going to say it's none of your business. I don't want to talk to you. I'm afraid if I invite you to lunch, you're going to say no. I don't want to spend time with you. The fear of rejection, I think, is a really big piece. Um, and I want to just remind us that fear is a self-protective mechanism that is really, really helpful when you're actually in danger, right? Like, sure. like there's the gift of fear. That's a book. Like you need to listen to the places where you are fearful about something because that is your brain being like, hold on, this, something's not right here. But we are talking about the fact that sometimes fear gets triggered for you're not unsafe. You're just worried about a thing happening. And so that distinction, I think, is really helpful. Matt, I've told you before, I've, I have multiple times where I have to meet with someone who's a little scary. I'm a little scared of them. And I say to myself before I go into the meeting, Rachel, you are safe. Like, you might have conflict, you might disagree, they might reject you, they might not like you, but you are safe. You don't have to have a fear response. Nothing is going to happen to you that you have to be fearful of, right? And I think, like you said, us practicing that and us modeling that for our students is a really important piece of this fear. Okay, so we have fear of rejection, we have fear of pain, we wanna avoid getting hurt. Um, which I think there's a lot of that, especially for our freshmen in transition, but all through the, the life cycle for our students, how do we avoid being hurt by someone? Um, I think about that specifically around social connections. So maybe academically, not as much, but for sure when you're thinking about making friends and how are you connecting to them, there's that fear of pain, avoiding getting hurt. On the academic side, I think we have a fear of failure do not make a fool of yourself, right? So um, I was telling you that I went to my first Catholic mass about a year ago. And that idea of like, do not make a fool of yourself was so real because I had no idea what was going on. And I just wanted to be very, very still and not do the wrong thing. You know what I mean? Like, don't fail at this thing that everybody around me knows how to do. Yeah. And I think for academics, that's a really big piece. Just something you want to add to that? No, I just, I, <clears throat> I think that's an, that's an interesting one when, so like, that's a great example of when that fear is what's um, looming kind of has all the weight. If you were able to set that aside and just be present, then it, then it opens up a whole lot of curiosity. Yeah, like, exactly. I wonder what, what this person's role is. And, you know, I mean, there's, it's just a whole lot that can be explored from uh, an event like that. Well, Matt, I like that example because if you put in a connection brain and curiosity, so if I'm going with my friend Alex who knows mass and I say to him before we go, Alex, I've never been to mass before. So will you help me understand what's going on already? I'm in connection brain, right? Now I'm not afraid of failure. I'm connected to him. And right. I'm like, hey, help me with this. And then the entire time I'm going to be saying, okay, what's happening? All right, now what? Okay, now what do we do? What does that mean? Why is that? So it is a great example of being like, nothing bad is going to happen to me. Let's take that fear and be like, you're okay. And now that I have this connection, who's a conduit for me to be able to be curious about what's actually going on around me. So I really yeah. love that. And I think it's why peer mentors and pairing students with other students is so powerful because it takes them away from, I'm gonna do something wrong too. You have a guide who's like walking along with you and helping you to be more open and more wondering about what's happening. So yeah. Good. Okay, we have a fear of conflict, which I think this is a really big one, not just for our college students, but I think for a lot of people in the world today, fear of conflict is do not create tension. Do not talk about things that are going to create tension. 
And it makes me a little bit sad because I'm thinking about with things like politics or things like your roommate, you know, I was just talking to Michael um, for Mary Harden Baylor, who was saying like, we have to teach people how to be part of a community and you will have tension with your roommates and you do have to learn how to talk about it. And that is healthy. That tension and that conflict is really, really healthy. Um, and Matt, I think about so many times where we are sure that we are on a polar op opposite political scale from somebody. I think you and I had this years and years ago where we were talking about something political and I was like, hey, but for real, I'm really curious as to why you're saying that because my sort of idea was that we were really far apart and, and being like, I don't wanna create tension, but I wanna understand why you're saying that. And then you said something totally reasonable and I was like, oh, yeah, okay, that, that makes sense to me. But that fear of creating tension in the with the people that you're around and the places that you live keeps us from being curious about why do you think that? And help me understand how that makes sense to you. And why is that so important to you, right? Yeah. So more about that. No, I think that's good. So as you're going through these, I do think just a self-assessment and an, an environmental assessment, but like what's keeping us, what's keeping my students, what's keeping me personally, what's keeping our institution from thriving, from from being curious. Like we've all been in the room. It, I kind of talked about it last week when, you know, like why can't we explore this idea? Why can't we have a good conversation around it? Like why is this getting shut down and so just thinking about like what what is in our way to us having a good conversation around this, right? Yeah. So this is it a fear of conflict? Faculty aren't always afraid of conflict. They like they like to challenge and have questions. But what but what is that speed bump to us having a real conversation? Um, and why are we afraid of real conversation? That's a concern for me. I think the next two fears are a really big reason why people, especially on a college campus, are afraid to be curious. And that is fear of the unknown and fear of change. So fear of uncertainty and fear of having to do something different. And I will just say, let me just be honest, when we're in a room and there's a big idea that's presented exactly as you're talking about, like, why can't we just be curious if we could do this new thing? Why can't we just be curious if we could have a new project or whatever? What happens to me is a fear of the unknown. Oh my gosh, what is that going to mean? And what is that going to take? And how is my life going to change because we're doing that thing? And then also this fear of change where it's like, maybe it's not great, but it's the not great that I know. And so when we're talking about movement into a different place, the worry that we're not just talking about it, but that actually it's going to be some motivator for something to turn out differently can shut down curiosity, right? I don't even want to talk about it because I'm afraid what it's actually going to do is help me understand change is necessary. And that's like a whole thing that I'm really not ready for, right? Yeah. What's your, what is the Prochaska's? Yeah. Prochaska's uh, stages of change. Like I'd like to stay in pre-contemplation. I'm not <laughs> ready for contemplation because I know yeah. Yeah. contemplation moves to preparation, moves to action, and then everything's different. Right. Um, and Matt, I will say that you have a really great strategy for this because this is a thing that happens between, between us often where you're like this and I'm like, don't even talk about it. <laughs> and you are like, okay, we don't, that's fine. Of course, we're not going to do this big idea. But if we were, what problems would we have to solve? What questions would we have? What people would we want on our team? And when you take out the, this is going to lead to a change that I'm not sure I can get behind. And you say like, could we just be curious of this right now? Because it might be that we ask a lot of questions about it. And at the end, we're like, yeah, that was a terrible idea. We actually are not going to do it, but we're well informed about it. Right. Um, but I think this is true with our colleagues and with our students to say, if you are feeling anxiety about the unknown and about change to just say, I'm not saying that we're going to have to change anything. Let's put that over here and just pretend like this is an idea that we want to explore fully. 
then what questions would you ask about it and what would you want to to wonder about and that's a much safer space to be able to be curious right yeah that's good okay um so when we think about fear one of the things that this book says that i really love is that fear is just excitement without a breath meaning fear is a sort of physiological thing that happens when when we're aroused and our heart starts beating faster and we're afraid we're in danger. And the way that you change that to excitement is you have that physiological surge and then you just take a deep breath and then it turns into anticipation or excitement. It's still a physiological response to something, but it moves you into this place of curiosity because you settle everything down a little bit enough to take a pause to say, it's not dangerous. I'm not in trouble. Um, another thing that they say, which I think is so helpful, both for our students and for us, which is growing is scary and uncomfortable. Growing is just scary and uncomfortable. And when it is scary and when it is uncomfortable, it does not mean it's bad. It just means you are at the stage where you're kind of growing a little bit. So I love both of those mantras to be able to take up a beat in the places where your fear flares up and, and keeps you from being curious um, to be able to say, like, I just need to settle that that physiological arousal down a little bit. I very, like, I have three memories. I won't unpack them, but times where I went into a thing or I was uh, inter introduced to this and I was afraid. And I remember the just taking a deep breath, not because I had any kind of sense to, yeah. but, I, but I remember how I went from, from that feeling to taking a minute, taking a deep breath. And then, and then what happened next was some life-changing, positive life-changing experiences. Right. Um, I mean, while <laughs> being an entrepreneur, there's a lot of times where you're like, there's a lot, of, there's a lot of, fear moments. Um, but I remember specifically times where taking a deep breath helped uh, back up and think about it in a different way rather than, than you just cannot be successful when you're in, when you're in fear brain. Right? Yeah, for sure. You know, um, we talk a lot about self-soothing, which is such an interesting thing, especially as you're working with kids. And I think it was Gottman who explained self-soothing. He said his daughter was like, so he was saying to his young daughter, you have to learn how to self-soothe. And she's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. What does that mean? And he was like, you know, when you get on top of the high dive and you walk out to the end and you take a deep breath before you jump off, what you do in that moment where you settle yourself and then you jump, that is self-soothing. And she's like, oh, okay. And so, you know, when my daughter was little, she, I taught her to self-soothe and she would say, I'm okay. You're okay. I'm strong and I'm brave. And I was super proud of her and we did it all the time. But I'll tell you the times that I was most proud of her is when I was watching her away from me and she would en encounter something that made her feel afraid. And she would start saying that to herself. That moment where you're like, it's okay. I'm not in danger. I'm just feeling a thing right now, right? Is exactly what we're talking about, propelling you then into curiosity and new experiences and, yeah. and trying things, right? Well, it's interesting because the high dive is a really good example for me. It just going through all of these self-protective mechanisms, like <laughs> so fear of pain. Like I really don't, I really don't want to get hurt. When I yeah. jump off of this, but I also this fear of rejection or or like I don't want to belly flop and everyone makes fun of me, which might actually be a fear of failure, right? <laughs> but then there's this giant fear of unknown, like what's going to happen when I hit the water, right? High yeah. dive is a, is a really that's a great example. Yeah, I don't know if um because I had a lot of fear about going off a high dive for all of those reasons. One of the things that I love so much that I think maybe moves the metaphor even forward more is that when you're at the pool and you have a younger child who climbs up the stairs and gets on the high dive, and sometimes you know they will take a long time at the end of the high dive, right? It's not just a breath. 
right. <laughs> is a, it is minutes of testing their steel and of figuring out if they're courageous enough. And I mean, it takes a long time. And I'll tell you, I'm going to get a little choked up about it. What I love is everybody else at the pool who is just like, just give them their space. Like, we're not going to rush them. We're not going to tell them there are people behind them. We are going to let this four-year-old do what they need to do to jump off the high dive. And when they do, we're all going to cheer for them and be super happy. I don't know these kids, but I'm like, you're doing hard work up there. You're doing such a great job, right? But don't you think that analogy fits with, with what we know about college and doing hard things for these uh, incoming freshmen and, and especially first generation? Because everyone at the pool, not everyone, but those who, who have some empathy, they were that kid. They may have been 30 years old when they first right. got on the top of that high dive. And they, they can actually remember all of those feelings and the bravery that it takes to jump. We're rooting for you. Like we want you to be successful and we'll give you space. That's a cool analogy. Yeah. So um, I love the idea too of running experiments with your fear. So, you know, we talk all the time about like, I'm afraid of this thing. Okay. Run a mini experiment. Just try. I'm afraid you're going to be angry if I say this to you. So just run an experiment about it. I I say this to my daughter all the time. I was afraid you were going to be mad. And I'm like, okay, just try me. Just try me. What's the worst thing that could happen? You could be right. And then you would know in the future that does make me mad. But most of the time I'm like, you know, water off a duck's back. So I think helping our students run little experiments where you're testing what you're afraid of. I'm afraid if I create tension in this relationship, you will never speak to me again. So how about if we just create a little bit of tension? I don't like that thing that you like. What happens? You'll know whether someone's trustworthy when you do those kinds of experiments, right? Whether it's okay for you to be curious um, in those relationships or those situations. So, so one thing I really, I, I really love about this book is is that he he goes and I mean he does this a lot. He does a lot of experiments. Yeah, it's just like I'm going to go put myself in a crowd of people who are not like me, and I'm afraid they actually aren't just not like me, but they don't like me or they hate me. I'm just going to go put myself in the middle of it and see if that's true. And, and it's, I think we need that today. Yeah. I I think we need as a culture, as community, we need to test this and, and reach out to other people or, or spend time around people who are uh, not like us. Yeah, for sure. So the next speed bump of curiosity is trauma. I don't want to spend very much time on this one because it is a really big one. Um, It's funny that this is in our chapter because I was just telling you yesterday in the span of the last five days, I have had several conversations about trauma-informed financial aid counseling, trauma-informed advising, trauma-informed res life. I think this is a new thing that's bubbling to the top. Specifically, when we think about trauma, it is coming from an adverse childhood experience, which we have a lot of students who have lived through in the last couple of years. Um, And it is a response that lives in your body that was created to protect you from things that happened to you before that you don't have a lot of control over, that make you respond in a in a way that is um, maybe not appropriate to this situation, but 100% appropriate based on what you've experienced. Right. And so it's just a much bigger thing than, okay, take a deep breath and you're okay. It's like, go to counseling. You need to have some real conversations. <clears throat> There's a lot of work to be done around trauma. But I think the point for this short format for us is that understanding and recognizing I don't feel safe here because of something that happened to me. That's where you just pause and say, that's something that I need to address. I, I, I really do not feel safe here and I need to go and, and work on that in some really intensive ways. So it is a totally understandable speed bump to curiosity, but it is a um, encouragement that when that happens, that you take that journey to help resolve some of that and figure out what, what you can do about it so that you can be more open and more curious about things. So anything else to say about that? Well, I just think it's it's so helpful. So j- just as I was reading through that, that it's this is stored in your body. It kind of affects the your hardwiring, right? Yeah. It's like it's like your hardware kind of changed 
because of this event. And, and now your, your body has this protective shell around this thing, right? Yeah. That, so that's, that's super helpful because then as, as you can identify that, I appreciate his action of just, you have, you have to go slow, take that pause, but, but you have to recognize it for what it is exactly as you said, this is past things that may not be appropriate to apply right now. Right. Yep. That's exactly right. Okay. Um, the next one, again, I'm not going to spend very much time on because I feel like you and I have done a whole deep dive on this. So another speed bump to curiosity is time. This book talks about, talks about a time famine where you're just like, I don't have enough time to do all the things. And oftentimes it's because your time is being eaten up with just a bunch of junk right? So um, you and I did a whole series on stolen focus, which is about how technology was intentionally designed to take up your whole life and distract you from reality. I'm not overstating that, unless yep. you think that I'm just exaggerating. I'm not. Um, that comes from the book Stolen Focus, which I think is super helpful. I, I mean, I would make that freshman reading right? It's just really, really helpful to understand that that is intentional to steal your long, deep thinking about things. Yeah. Um, and I would say that one particularly, even if you are not scrolling forever and wasting time on the computer, looking up crazy things like where does paprika come from? Um, we're busy. Like we're, we're just very busy. We're all wearing five different hats. And I was thinking about Matt, the college students who go to our local university who finished pledging on Sunday and started sing song on Monday. And it's like every one of them that I talked to is like the feeling of just onto the next one, onto the next one, onto the next. There's no celebration of those things. There's no <laughs> rest. There's no like, okay, deep breath. It's just keep going, keep going, keep going. And I don't think that it is a coincidence that your story of the last time you had deep curiosity about a thing is when you were on vacation. Yeah. Well, for sure. For sure. I mean, Stolen Focus, go back and, and our our uh, podcast on that is, is great. The book is excellent. Um, but here's an interesting thing related to this idea of a time famine. I was just reading, um, uh, it was kind of a, a blog post from a woman who set her phone, she had, she decided to go to a two phone model. So she has her iPhone, which is for work and it, whatever, all the things while she's at work. But then she just puts that phone away and she has this second phone, which she's made a discipline, which this sounds incredibly hard. But my phone broke, and I, and I went all day Friday without a working phone, and then Saturday I got a replacement phone that was overnighted, and that was really kind. But, but at first it said it would take 18 hours to transfer what was on my broken phone to my new phone, and I thought, what am I going to – 18 hours? How can I live? So then it shortened down to three, but those three hours were kind, kind of painful. Well, so what she's done in this with this second phone is like only there's only like five phone numbers on it. There's no there are no apps, no email. There's no work pressure. I get to be off the hook, which, man, that's a discipline. I know the pain of not having like feeling like you're um, connected. Yeah, it's almost like someone's kind of taking your oxygen away, which, which is kind of embarrassing. It's embarrassing to say that, right? Like, but we're so dependent on it. Yeah. This idea of finding, like taking back your time, it's so important. And I think it's super hard. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because as you're saying that I'm, I'm thinking about even the, so I wake up in the middle of the night and I look at my phone and I have five emails that have come in on do not disturb. Right. And I'm like, don't, look at those. When you look at those, it turns your brain on and then you're not going to stop thinking about how that now you've yeah. got to do that tomorrow and you've got, but it's funny because you could pitch that I'm curious. I just want to know what's happening. And there's a difference between manic 
and curious. Right? <laughs> but I don't know how to define that. And maybe manic's not the right, but it, but it is, it's like we were talking about searching for a dopamine hit. Yeah. Searching for like what came in and what's the notification and what did I miss and what's this? And so actually the discipline to say that is nothing that I need to think about at two in the morning. It can wait. I'm not going to get that dopamine hit of this is what's going on. And instead I'm going to rest and give myself time for deep thinking. And then tomorrow I will be curious about the things that people have sent to me overnight. Right. All right. The very last one that we have as a speed bump to curiosity, and that is distance. And this means specifically distance between um, differences. So this book talks a lot about how we are separated by so many things. We are separated by age. We are separated by politics. We are separated by demographics. And one thing well, so let me say that distance means we just are surrounded by people who we sort of intrinsically understand because they're just like us. So we're not curious and we don't wonder because we know what they think, um, which side note, you can be wrong, right? You can be sure that everybody you know is just like you and really you just haven't wondered about them. So you have no idea how you're different. Right. Um, but also it could be that you are surrounded by people who are really similar. We've talked about the algorithms of social media who are like showing you the things that you want to see, the things that you respond to. So it can be that you're like in a very homogeneous mix um, and it separates you from other perspectives and other people and other life experiences. And so the wondering of that, I think, is is the wondering about other people sometimes is shortcutted when you're like, oh yeah, I know about them and I'm not gonna ask questions. Um, I think that higher education is such a beautiful place to combat this. Um, depending on the kind of campus you are, you may have quite a mix of different people on your campus. And so how you create that community. I told you about a school that I saw at the last conference I was at, Newman, which is a Catholic university. It's a very small school, but they have just bought some spaces in the convent next to them. So they have 40 sisters and 40 college students who are living together. And the reflections that come from the sisters and the students are just so rich with so awesome. enjoyment of each other. And like, can we show you how to make TikToks? And can we <laughs> have a dance for you? And can we, it's just, it is such a great example of this intergenerational mixing. And I would say all of the articles that I've read about it have been about how they have come to appreciate each other so much more that they had these sort of biases. Like, like students were like, I didn't want to move in the sisters because they're all ladies and, you know, they're all nuns. And then they move in and they're like, oh, they're real people who are fun and who do exciting things and have great perspectives and pray for us when we have our exams and that sort of thing. It, it's just such a nice way to be able to say, this is a real person with real perspectives and you can wonder about them instead of just assuming that you already know. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a great example. And I just, I don't know. They're just, when I see that, I feel joy, I, right? Like there's just joy that comes from that. So one of the, so it's hard, it can be hard to close that distance. I think about you when you were working at McKay's and in the the coffee group, the, yeah. the group of old guys who would who would have their coffee time together, and you're like, who are these guys? Seven like they year come old men, yeah, who come in every single day. Text seven year old Texas men who come in every day, and my job is to keep their coffee cups full, and it was delightful. Like they liked me, and I liked them, and I learned a lot uh, from them. Listening to them talk about what it's like to live in West Texas and their perspective, right? If you're a curious person, uh oh. I, I think I froze. If you're a curious person, you're listening to their conversation. There's there's just a lot. Of, it's rich, right? Yeah. But if you're a closed off person, you could, I could see where one would be frustrated with them or annoyed by them, right? And so closing that distance can be hard. But man, there's just so much that you can learn from other people. And I I love what's happening at Newman. It's a great model. Yeah. We've talked about that in the past with State State of the Union, like. If you have uh, your students spend time at the retirement villages, there's a there's just a lot of richness of life, and yeah. 
We need more of that. So one of the things this book suggests is these third spaces, which unfortunately we are having difficulty with coming back from COVID, but figuring out spaces where you get to be with other people who are not like you um, so that you can just be curious about that. And what I think it's hilarious, they're like, one of the best third spaces is a Dolly Parton concert because everybody <laughs> loves Dolly Parton. You come in, there's not like a certain kind of person who goes to a Dolly Parton concert. It's like all of the kind of people. So if you get a chance to go to a Dolly Parton concert, you for sure should do that. That's good. Okay. So those are the speed bumps. I think it would be really helpful for you just to ask yourself questions about what speed bumps you face specifically, especially around the fear. So fear of rejection, pain, failure, conflict, the unknown, change. Which of those do you find come up for you most often? But then also, if you have a trauma response, if you have a time famine, if you have a lot of distance between you and others, those are ways that you can think about how to, to create space for you to be more creative and to just ask deep curiosity, wondering questions. This book talks about the dive model for curiosity, which is what we're going to do the next time we talk about the book. That's teaching you in your curiosity to be detached, to to intend the questions you meet or you ask, to value the responses and embrace other people's perspectives. So we'll unpack that a little bit more. But for now, um, I have been really challenged just to think about when a speed bump comes up in my uh, quest for curiosity to be able to name it and be able to have that deep breath, that self-soothing that ability to say, I want to clear this away so that I can really wonder about what's happening with other people. Um, Matt, next week I have Dr. Schenkel with me, which is going to be amazing. She's going to be talking about transfer credits. She's like a superstar in the world of transfer credits. And so it's going to be very, very instructive. <clears throat> From Texas A&M uh, University yeah. system. Yeah. So she's in charge of that whole piece. And so I think we're going to have some really rich conversation around just the tactical pieces. Yeah. Um, so thank you guys so much for joining us. Always good to spend time with you. Have a great day. Thanks, Rachel.